0: It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is the Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Today, we are joined by Angela A. Stanton. Angela is a neuroeconomist who evaluates changes in behavior, chronic pain, and decision-making as a result of hormonal variations in the brain. She lives in Southern California, and her current research is focused on migraine cause, prevention, and treatment without the use of medicines. She found the cause of migraines to be at the ionic level, associated with disruption of the electrolyte homeostasis, resulting from genetic mutations of insulin and glucose transporters, as well as voltage-gated sodium and calcium channel mutations. Such mutations cause major shifts in a migraine brain, unlike that of a non-migraine brain. She is also the author of the book, Fighting the Migraine Epidemic, How to Treat and Prevent Migraines Without Medicines. An Insider's View explains why we have migraines, how to prevent them, and how to stay migraine and medicine free for life. With that said, we are so honored to have her on the podcast today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you for inviting
1: me. It's been an honor. Absolutely. So I love just starting out the podcast episodes by asking for you to just kind of delve into your story just a little bit more, your journey, and then what led you to focus on this migraine research. Sure. Um, As far as I recall, I started migraine when I
2: was in my early teens, probably about 11. I don't know exactly when, but I started migraines very young. And at that time, nobody knew it was migraines because I had an atypical presentation, which and now I know is typical for children, which is cyclical vomiting syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, having continual infections of the intestines. And so this then, um, I, I don't recall when it and how it actually turned into the headache type migraines. But I I remember my first official real migraine that was diagnosed with migraine was when I was 29. So after the birth of my second child, and I'm 17 now. So, we we're talking about many, many years of migraines. And, you know, you're told all through your life, well, when you get into menopause, you're going to be better. Or they tell you all kinds of things. And none of that turned out to be true. So, when I was in my early 50s, I reached the point of not having a day without migraines. And at that point, I quit my job. I was teaching at the university, I was doing research at Max Planck University in Germany. And um I just, close up everything, let me do the next. And I said, okay, that's it, I'm, I'm quitting because I'm just having migraines all the time. And I uh, started to read the academic literature, books, everything I could. I mean, I was in neuroscience, I knew quite well what the brain was about, but didn't know anything about migraines other than that I had it. And I decided to switch to uh, the research in migraines and so spent about 10, 15 years um, just reading, understanding and then starting to experiment of what I could change and do. And I discovered so little by little salt helped. Of course, I tried all kinds of other things before that everybody tells you she should like the B vitamins and the magnesium, none of that did anything, but the salt did, so that was a good step. And then slowly, somehow that got me involved with nutrition and I started to study into nutrition. So we're talking about basically uh, two entirely different fields from my dissertation. Although my dissertation was in hormones themselves, hormonal uh, functions in the brain and how they affect the behavior, so it's not a big jump, but it's a very different thing. And um, so slowly, it kind of evolved that oh, this is all based by what I'm eating, and what I am not eating, meaning salt. And so slowly, it took about 15 years to come to full understanding of how it's connected to the brain's function the electrolyte, the ionic channels that you mentioned. And um, I started, I created the Stentum migraine Protocol at about that time, I would say about uh, 11, 12 years ago. And I wrote a book about it, not as the protocol, but as my story and what I did and how it helped. And that book was published in 2014. And that started a movement um, that is now uh, migraine Group on Facebook. Which has over 15,000 members. I was just looking just so far today, and this is not even half the day. We admitted 34 people, so I mean it's really a huge growth spur that we're experiencing. And so since then, I published a second book, which was then by then that was 2017, that contained what I now refer to as the mining protocol. Of course, it evolved even further. So I'm working on the final edition of the book. And so this is how it sort of kind of connected to nu- nutrition. I had pretty much had to almost get my PhD in nutrition to understand how this happened. So this is how I am, where I am today.
1: Wow, that's incredible and super inspiring. I feel like all of us have these backstories of kind of trying to help ourselves a little bit through whatever situation is going on. And no, that that's a really incredible story. And it sounds like you're helping so many people as a result, which is Amazing. It is fantastic, yeah. Yeah, it truly is. So to lay the context for our audience, let's just rewind and can we go over like the difference between a regular headache and a migraine?
2: Okay, so this is one of the biggest misconceptions and I'm glad that you're asking this right up front because migraine doesn't even need to have a headache. So when we are looking at migraine, about 20% are known, there could be a completely different number because this misdiagnosis is rampant. But in current literature, about 20% of migraineurs don't get pain, or headache to the migraine. So if we can have migraine without a headache, then headache is not essential to have a migraine. So migraine doesn't really have anything to do with a headache.
1: Oh, wow. That's a big, it's a
2: very big misunderstanding. So I'm not saying that migraine doesn't come with a headache, 80% of the people do end up with a headache with the migraine, but I'm saying that it's not the same thing because if I can have a migraine without a headache, then clearly there's a huge difference. Now, how to measure that difference? Like if you have a headache, how do you tell that you have a headache versus a migraine headache? Then we have to understand some different differentiating factors. So you can have a headache anywhere in your head. Most people complain about having a headache, like the forehead or like a big squeeze on the head itself. And it can be anywhere on the head. It can be moving. It can get worse if you bend forward, uh, bend down. Uh, It may be worse when you get up. So it's positional as well. But these all respond to some sort of a headache medications and over-the-counter, like an Advil, Tylenol, anything else that you can think of. Migraine though, because it is not a headache, though it may come with a headache symptom as well, it will not respond to an over-the-counter headache pill. And it's not going to be positional because it's not a headache. Like again, back to the point that it doesn't need to have a headache. So if it has a headache, it's just a symptom of many things, but the most important part to understand is that in migraine, Migraine happens only on one side of the brain. So if you're looking at our head, we think that it's one giant brain, but actually it has a left side and a right side. It's two completely separate hemispheres and they don't even properly communicate in every which way. And also don't replicate. Like um, my ability to speak is on the left side of my head, right above the ear uh, and sort of kind of deeper, like about an inch and a half deep. Uh, called the Broca Center, but there's no such on the right side of my brain. And so if I have a stroke on the left side of my brain, I can't speak, but if I have a stroke on my right side of the brain, it's not affected, my speech is not affected. And so because the brain is not symmetrical in the two hemispheres, and migraine is only on one hemisphere, the pain associated with it will also be only on one hemisphere. So migraine pain is going to be always one-sided, which is referred to as unilateral. In addition, Uh, because there's no pain sensation inside your brain. Uh, The pain is felt outside of your brain in what's called the dura, which is a a layer that coats the brain to sort of kind of cushion it away from the skull so that if you move your head, you're not hitting your brain to the skull. And so all the brain, the blood vessels and all the sensory neurons are within this layer. And so the brain isn't really what you feel is not really your brain hurting it's a signal coming out of your brain, reaching the pain signal to warn you that something is hurting. And so it's not the whole head, it's very specific to a particular region within the brain that is connected to that particular pain sensory neuron. So it's a very different kind of a pain from a general headache, which could be really anywhere. And because it is not associated with the blood vessels, and we can talk about that later as we explain, migraine a little bit more in more detail. It's not vascular, so it's not going to be pulsing. And I know that everywhere you read is going to tell you that the migraine headache is a big pulsing headache, but actually that's not true. What happens is, is that once the person has had a headache for a number of hours and it's really bad, maybe that person starts feeling a really bad transfer of pain to other parts of the brain. But actually that's just still not a pulsating headache but the overall headache in the brain after so many hours and maybe days it may end up feeling as if it were pulsing and the last um, differentiating which is defined by the international headache society that a migraine by definition must be more than four hours long so if you have a headache that is less than four hours it was not a migraine but, if it is more than four hours, it is, and the typical migraine is between four to seventy two hours. In my experience, most migraineurs have migraine from twenty four hours to seventy two hours so it's a very long process. it's not just and it's it's slow intensity so that it slowly increases rather than suddenly like uh there's cluster headaches which come on like. Also called stick headaches into the eye, which is like a huge thunder into your eye. There's thunderclap headaches, which are like instant headaches, so strong that you can even dirty your pants from them. So each headache type has its very particular little um, distinct ways of presenting, and so migraine is is very unique and different from all the other headaches.
1: That's actually really fascinating. That. That's such a distinction there between headache and migraine, and even that kind of if it's less than four hours, it's not a migraine kind of cutoff there. Um, pretty pretty interesting stuff. So I do want to start transitioning into like the ketogenic diet and its relationship to migraines, and and maybe we can even start that conversation by just delving into. What the ketogenic diet is and how it affects things like glucose and insulin sure let
2: me start with explaining what a ketogenic diet is because that's an easier entry into whether it does or does not help migraine so the ketogenic diet people tend to think of it as a fad diet or as a diet per se but it's neither it's none of the above it's not really a diet it's a way of eating and the state that happens after you ate and so Whether you are going to be on the ketogenic diet, so to speak, will be really measured by how much you ate of of the carbohydrates and how much fat you ate uh, and how much protein you ate. It isn't a very specific diet where you're supposed to be eating so many ounces of this and that and those, but it's just you have to reduce your carbohydrates and you have to increase the fat. And this in itself is sort of kind of this number two, because you will get into ketosis also from fasting, right? So you're not eating anything and you still get into fasting. So then what exactly is ketosis? So ketosis really isn't a diet, it's really your body's um, response to not using glucose as a primary fuel. So if you are now when I'm saying primary fuel, I have to modify that a little bit because some of the organs in our body, for example, our red blood cells are obligated glucose users. So it doesn't matter how much you're in ketosis, your blood can only use glucose. It simply can't use ketones. Um, there are some other organs, for example, say the liver that is actually creating the ketones. Ketones, It can't use ketones. It's going to use fat and glucose as its fuel, but it doesn't have the ability to use the ketones. So not everything in your body can use ketones. So Even if you're fully in ketosis, you still have organs that are not using ketones. (laughs) It's not ever going to be the primary fuel, but ketones is the fuel that the body is going to be using if for whatever reason, say you end up in a fire like in Maui and you can't eat for a whole week. Yes, you're gonna end up in ketosis and that's a safety measure of your body, of making your body use up your stored fat instead of depending on glucose, because your stored fat can, and that's called triglycerides in, in another word, and that can be converted into free fatty acids to be used as well as glucose. The glycerol cap of the triglycerides is going to be converted by the liver into glucose, or glycogen, I should say, and then it's going to convert into glucose. And so there will always be some glucose use in your body the other thing about the state of ketosis or the ketogenic diet if you will is that assume that you are in ketosis because it is a state in which your body is in basically a mode of perseverance so you preserve what you what you use what you have preserved you're taking it apart you're entering a catabolic state so a catabolic state is basically taking apart so In a catabolic state, you can't, for example, uh, suddenly grow muscles because you don't have protein synthesis ability. You can use some minimal protein to be synthesized. And so, for example, if somebody is very obese and goes on a fasting scheme or a ketogenic diet and loses a lot of fat, Mm -hmm. they don't typically end up with uh, sagging skin. And that's because the skin is very rich in nutrients. And so the body is going to reuse the sagging skin, as opposed to if you have a surgery, like a bypass for your stomach, you're gonna end up with a lot of sagging skin because your body hasn't been trained to use all the the fat and all the ketones, so it can't even develop it, can't use it. But if you're fasting, or if you're eating the ketogenic diet, the whole idea is, is that you are using up what you have stored. And so the ketogenic diet simply maintains you in the state of ketosis, which mimics a starvation, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's very beneficial for weight loss. It's very beneficial for some um, diseases, for example, seizures respond. And we've known this from 4,000 years ago that seizures respond to fasting and fasting initiates the ketogenic state. So therefore, a ketogenic diet, which maintains the ketogenic state, is going to be helpful for seizure. Uh, It is also very helpful, for example, against other neurological conditions. Um, I just created a lecture for Nutrition Network um, for uh, continuing, professional continuing education credit for healthcare professionals on the healthy brain versus the neurological diseases. And so looking at um, how important ketones are for the sick brain that can't use glucose. So in those cases as well, and these would include nearly every single neurological condition that is not a birth defect or an accident and so when you're talking about today brain cancer alzheimer's disease parkinson's disease even als and all um the neurological disorders associated with the muscles like muscular dystrophy all of these are basically a form of metabolic disease in which the brain can't use glucose but can use ketones so it's not just for starvation, but it can be used for many things. But it's very important to understand that when you're on a ketogenic diet, you can't really do protein synthesis. So it's not a permanent way of eating if you want to remain healthy. So the ideal way of eating to be healthy, whether you're a magnet or not, is the way in which you come and go in and out of ketosis in a pattern. So you eat a big meal full of uh, protein, then you will come out of ketosis and you will be protein synthesizing. And then when you finish, you go back into ketosis. That is the perfect way of being. And so that is the goal. Now in terms of migraine, very specifically, that's a little bit more complicated, because I have to explain uh, what migraine is to understand why this would be helpful. So migraine is a genetic condition and it represents a different brain. So if I'm looking at the brain on an average human, you're going to have so many sensory neurons associated with your sensory organs. And your sensory organs are like your eyes, nose, ear, um, skin, uh, mouth. And so each of these will have so many sensory neurons connected to it. So if you smell something, then the message is going to go through to your brain and you discover that you actually smelled it. So if I put something under your nose. When it comes to migraineurs, their sensory neurons have more more connections than a typical typical non-migraine brain. And so this is what I refer to as the ancestral ancient mammalian brain, where if you go to any zoo or a safari, wherever, and you look at animals and you can see how they're turning their ears, listening to different sounds, they're sniffing the air and they can smell a lion from three four miles away so they can run away faster so that's the default <clears throat> mammalian sensory brain where it's hypersensory and so migraine brain is a hypersensory brain so it's basically a human brain not adapted to the modern life the same way as other people's brains are who are not migraineurs. and so it's an adaptation issue and so the migraine brain is genetically much easier to trigger by light or by sound or by smell or taste or touch and so it's a different kind of a brain and one of the biggest problems with the migraine brain is that when you're talking about these enhanced hypersensory neurons in order for the brain to have communication it uses salt it uses sodium And so this is where I'm starting to connect the dots because if I, if my brain uses a lot more energy because it has a lot more connections, it's a hypersensory neuron and I can smell that lion from two miles away, whereas a person without migraine, can only smell them when they are near it. Then I must have um, a much faster reacting sensory neuronal system and much more frequently activating one in order for me to tell that there's a lion two two miles away from me and my brain is like this and so they use a lot more uh, action potential action potential is the the start of the electricity so that's the electrical communication between neurons and so if i'm creating a lot more electricity and if i'm using a lot more action potential i need a lot more sodium because sodium is the one that creates the electricity, the action potential. But if I am eating carbohydrates, what does glucose do? Glucose has to get inside the cells. How does glucose get into the cells? It can't go in on its own. It needs a transport system. And the key transport system for glucose is not insulin, it's actually sodium, sodium channels, because these are voltage gated sodium channels. So in the brain, for example, insulin. It is completely differently from the rest of the body. And it's not used for glucose transport at all. Sodium is used for transporting glucose into the neurons. But if I don't have enough sodium, first of all, I can't get the glucose in. Second of all, if I have <clears throat> enough sodium and I can get the glucose into the cell, the way the glucose enters the cells, it literally removes sodium and water from the cell. And so with each glucose molecule going into the cell, I'm removing sodium and water from the cell. And so if I'm eating carbohydrates, I actually make my brain deficient in sodium. So this is the connection then. So my brain is connecting here to the point that I have eaten a lot of carbohydrates. Therefore, I don't have enough sodium that I need to. I can't generate the electricity. And therefore, I have a problem. And so if I'm taking a diet, such as a ketogenic way of eating, that is reducing carbohydrates, then it will automatically help me because I'm not eating carbohydrates
1: that will remove sodium from the brain. Wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. Now, what about like ketones in the brain?
2: Okay, so ketones is basically a fatty acid. It's a small chain to medium chain fatty acids. And so the whole brain can't use ketones only it can replace up to about 70, 80% of the functions of the energy of the brain. And ketones are also can can be used as building blocks of the brain, which is different from glucose. Glucose has to be converted to fatty acids to be uh, used structurally in the brain. So ketones are very good and they can replace a lot of functions, but not everything, for example, glial cells, which are the main cells around the neurons to support the myelination, the feeding of the neuron, the connections, and basically everything the real cells do. They can't use ketones. So ketones are not alone in the brain. The brain always has all these other fuels that it can use. It uses glucose, it uses uh, lactate, which is uh, a byproduct of glucose um, conversion to go to the mitochondria uh, from pyruvate. And of course, glycogen, which can also um, uh, cross the blood-brain barrier and there's a cycling in the brain between glycogen to glucose, to lactate. And so there's a big cycling going on continuously. So the brain is ready to, if there's a sugar need, it's ready to, <clears throat> to make, create, use the glycogen or use the lactate instead. And ketones are there now in some, cases ketones may be the preferred fuel for the brain so for example in cases of alzheimer's or parkinson's and in cases where um, the brain has been compromised uh, in some way then ketones will become the preferred fuel for the brain but it will still need to have some amount of glucose some amount of lactate so it's still going to be have to be used, but ketones can be used. So if but if you have a very healthy brain and uh, everything is working perfectly, then genetics will decide whether ketones is going to be of the utmost importance for your brain or not. If you look back at, uh, for example, um, let's go back to pregnancy. The fetus and the womb of the mother is in ketosis all through pregnancy basically is coming in and out of ketosis. And it has to be because it is not yet able to create cholesterol and the brain creates its own cholesterol, by the way. So, and our brain is 85% cholesterol and fatty acids. And so <clears throat> the fetus must be able to have access to fat in order to build the brain. So the ketones are building blocks, structural building blocks of the brain as well. The, the baby, is actually born in ketosis, and you know how uh, when it's a vaginal birth, the head actually shrinks as a result of the the uh, uh, the birth process itself uh, in the vagina. And so, when the head is out, it takes about two weeks for it to to reach back again its full size. And so, if there was no ketones in the brain, if the brain was truly developed. There would be serious brain damage there, but there isn't. So the 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 child when it's born for the first couple of weeks it is a mandatory ketone use by the brain to help it rebuild and and expand and recover. And then the child is in ketosis, in and out of ketosis after feeding all through nursing and all through age ten. So it's a natural fuel for us. It's it's not a fuel that we just simply dreamt up. That okay, let's do ketone, ketones and Use it, but it's been with us since birth. And so, and, and even in an adult, if we ate the kind of foods that humans were used to eating, say, even as little as 200 years ago, when we didn't yet have transportation, and we, we had seasonal fruits and vegetables, and much fewer vegetables, by the way, because most of them are newly created, they didn't exist. Uh, if we didn't have these, then even today's adults would be in ketosis every night. That's the natural state. Of our body,
1: yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And bringing that concept of what the baby actually feeds on—I mean, that's that's enough evidence right there to say this is extremely natural for the body, and the body thrives off of it.
2: And so, I think
1: one, one more thing,
2: if I may, yeah. is that the nursing milk from the mother contains ketones as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there you go—you can't get any more natural than that. So. Right. I love that. Now, I did want to make like the distinction when the brain or or the certain cells that need the glucose um so they they kind of steal the sodium and they shift it out of the cell so you're kind of losing sodium whenever that glucose is going in to give you energy, et cetera. Now, in the case of ketones in the brain, with those cells that can use the ketones as their preferred source is that that sodium loss is not occurring, correct? It's not occurring,
2: exactly. And so uh, you still need to have sodium replenishment because simply the migraine brain is using more sodium. But it's not going to be nearly as much as if you were continuing eating the standard American said diet, or if you were on a plant-based diet, both of which are full of carbohydrates, that they remove the sodium. And so if you're on that diet, you need a lot more sodium. On
1: ketogenic, you just simply need to have a little more. Gotcha, gotcha. And then my other kind of question on this was in that kind of keto flexing in and out where we're doing the more fat, keto, ketones, all that stuff, um, and then we're kind of flexing with more protein, that protein, is that kind of our glucose source because of the gluconeogenesis? Right. Right exactly and so the way that one would work and it's a very good question
2: so you can have three ways of going with protein you can have too little protein you can have exactly the right amount of protein and i will explain what that is or you can have too much protein and so each of them will represent different things and when i'm talking about protein here it can be any protein but just with the understanding that animal protein has a better absorption rate than plant protein and also plant proteins are not complete It needs to be mixed in a very special way. But so assuming that you know and you have the right kind of protein available to you, if you eat, um, okay, let me back up. So there are a couple of factors to understand here. So age and physical activity has a lot to do with how much protein you should be eating. If you are very young, say you're very young and you're under 35, basically anything you eat is going to convert into muscles. So you don't have any problems. You can just eat all day long, whatever you want, Um, And as long as you eat anything that has protein in it, everything has a little bit of protein in it, even an apple. You eat enough to have enough protein and your body is still able, you don't have what is called the leucine threshold. So leucine is a branch chain amino acid. It's a ketogenic amino acid, which means it needs ketones to actually initiate in the body, which is interesting on its own. Uh, If you don't have it, that will make it very difficult for you to synthesize protein. So it has to start with, uh ketones availability but so your leucine in one single meal i refer to that as both amount you would need to have minimum three grams of leucine in order for protein synthesis to start but if you're just simply eating leucine you can buy leucine powder (laughs) in a sports store if you're just eating leucine nothing is going to happen because that is just a signaling molecule that there is enough nutrients, to start the protein synthesis, but the body is not stupid. And if there's not enough nutrients, it's not gonna start anything. And so you need to have full nutrients and that means full amino acids, fatty acids as well. So these two, but in the amino acid group, we have 20, 21 officially, but 20 is what we are using uh, as an everyday subject. Um, of the 20 uh, amino acids, I believe it's 18 that are primarily glucogenic, which means that if you aren't starting protein synthesis, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. these are going to convert to glucose. Okay. okay. So 80% or more of the amino acids in the protein that you ate, if you don't eat enough and you can't start protein synthesis because you don't have enough leucine to signal, or you just ate protein powder without enough fat, without enough, you know, valuable nutrients. You can't start protein synthesis. That whatever you ate is going to convert to just sugar in your blood. And that's going to be by the liver converting into glucose. Okay. If you ate too much protein and too much protein means that you have, you met your protein synthesis requirements with the leucine and you started protein synthesis, but there is a maximum amount of protein you can synthesize before your body says, I need a break. And so this maximum is also age and activity dependent. And if you reached this maximum and you have a lot more protein left in your system than what this maximum could use for protein synthesis, then that leftover will also convert to glucose. And so you have to kind of sort of aim at the right amount of protein. And that's very difficult to estimate. I'm sure that there are some ways to estimate it. I, uh, I use a blood glucose test, which is five hours long and I can sort of kind of see, I think I can sort of kind of see when the person is starting protein synthesis and when the person is finished with protein synthesis because you can see the, the insulin and glucose play changes. Insulin must be spiked For protein synthesis so insulin is is a prime activity of insulin it really isn't meant to take glucose out of the system and into the cells that's something we have invented in the modern era In in the older era where we were really just eating for sustenance just to survive ed's job was to get all the food that you ate and convert it into storage or to uh, muscles and by muscles i don't, don't don't just mean skeletal muscle, but every single cell in your body is basically made of protein. Uh, Look at your skin. Your skin uh, replaces every three to four months. Uh, The blood cells replace, they live for three to four months, but the platelets only for 10 days. Uh, Stomach lining will replace any two to three days and the the, uh, entire gut system, like colon and uh, intestines, every two to four days. So, you have a constant cellular replacement. I mean, your hair falls out of the wire. Each hair has a life cycle and then it falls out and it has a break and then three months later it starts to grow again. So, everything replaces. And so, all of these, except for the hair, but all of these are made of protein. And so, if you have uh, to replace a cell on your skin, it's going to have to create it via
1: protein synthesis. Yeah, so you have to eat just the right amount of protein. So you mentioned a test, kind of to see where the protein synthesis sort of ends and where the glucose starts generating, basically. What what test is that, and how does how does that work?
2: Okay, so I don't know how uh, knowledgeable your <coughs> excuse me <coughs> your audience is about the Kraft test. I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Kraft. He was a medical doctor, he just died recently. And he created a test which is very similar to what today is used <clears throat> as the insulin glucose, oral glucose tolerance test. Okay. It's not exactly the same thing. So what he did was taking, um, giving people glucose to drink And then for five hours, every hour, he would check their blood glucose and blood insulin. Now I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't take anybody's blood. So what we do is we use blood ketones because ketones and insulin work together in a very unique way where you can look at what happens to blood glucose and blood ketones and understand what happens to insulin. So you can use ketones as proxy for the insulin. And so I have created a five-hour test which is very similar to what Kraft did. Uh, I don't give anybody oral glucose to eat. So what we have is that we have different ways of eating, whether it be carnivore or ketogenic or low-carb high-fat. And so people will eat accordingly. They tell us what they ate, also the amount, the calories, all the different macros of what they have in there. And I have created what I call sort of kind of normal curves. And so these normal curves are like trend lines that, a person eating say, the ketogenic diet after eating a ketogenic meal for breakfast, they should have such a fasting, such postprandially for the next five hours. This is what the test should look like, and so they're taking their blood glucose and blood ketones every half an hour, and it's every half an hour rather than every hour in order for me to catch minute little differences. And so they're doing this for five hours post-premium. So I have a fasting, at the pre-meal and then five hours testing, which is 10 additional. So 12 total readings. And that gives me a curve of what it looks like. And when they start protein synthesis, because protein synthesis kicks, it requires insulin to be spiked. There's usually a little bit of a spike of insulin. So you can actually see that with a change of ketones. Oh. And then as they're synthesizing, You can see the blood glucose is pretty stable and it's somewhere in the range of the mid in milligram per deciliter. It's in the mid 80s to mid 90s, but it's not over 99. It's not usually over 100 and it never goes below 80. Because the moment it goes below 80, that's a sign that insulin kicked in. And so blood glucose on its own can't go below 80. If (laughs) it
1: goes below 80, it's only from the insulin. Okay, gotcha. So these, these are curves that you kind of put together throughout, like, based on this craft test? Right.
2: And also based on, uh, we had some test runs uh, at the beginning before I had the curve. And so then I could see and of course, the, ad, the ad, fellow admins in the migrant group in the Facebook group, um, they have been with me, and it's like been with me from since our opening our doors, and another one for like uh, maybe started a year later, and another one a couple of years later. So they're really veterans of the protocol, and they when they run the 5R test, and I run it too. Then because we no longer have metabolic disease, and we no longer have migraines, or we can af- avoid having migraines, so let's put it that way, can prevent them. Then we can rely on our blood test as an example of what the norm would be given that after so many years of eating so well and maintaining a migraine-free diet, uh, we can tell where we are. And so I can use this how you sort of kind of built up. And of course, a lot of literature will tell you what a normal would look like as well. So it takes a lot of work to sort of understand where you should be. And then once you understood it, then it goes from there.
1: That's so cool. I want to ask so many more questions about this. I'm super interested. But I, I will just ask one more before we kind of get back into um, more like your protocol and, and for migraines specifically. But when it comes to like the carnivore diet, is, is there ever a worry that that's, like you were saying, There's there can be too much and too little protein. But in the avoidance of those fats, is there a worry that you can actually shoot your blood sugar like high on the carnivore diet? Sure. uh, You can. It's not, it's never
2: going to be too high uh, because um, the difference is, is a little bit, it's a little bit complicated to understand, but let, let me see if I can explain. So when you eat carbohydrates, you basically get sugar in your mouth because you have enzymes in your saliva that start breaking down the sugars and you can taste the sweetness. But when you're eating protein, uh, you, you can't because you'd have to break down the amino acids. And so your insulin and your whole body reaction to the carbohydrates that come out of protein aren't going to spike the insulin the same way. So when you're eating an apple, just by looking at the apple, you release a certain amount of insulin that's referred to as the cephalic insulin release. And that would be stage one insulin, which sort of kind of guesses of how much insulin you need and depending upon your metabolic status this can overshoot tremendously and so that would be the cause for example of a post-prandial reactive hyperglycemia because you just release way too much insulin without because your body was used to using that much insulin so the more insulin insensitive you are the more insulin you're going to be releasing and that's going to then take your blood glucose lower after your meal it's a really interesting conflict right there. Uh, if you're healthy, then you are going to be releasing much less insulin. If you're eating protein, you're not going to be releasing much insulin at all for your first couple of bites because they're not sugar laden. So your mouth doesn't detect any sugar or sweetness. You will release a little bit of insulin because you will also always release it. It's almost like a Pavlovian. Reflects. I mean, how often do you look at the lemon and your saliva sort of starts to flow, right? I mean, we can't change it. This is just the way that we are built because our digestive fluids are starting to to wake up when we know we're about to eat to sort of accelerate the digestion process. So when you eat meat, you're cutting out a large part of this insulin right up front. And basically, whatever insulin will be needed is going to be dictated by uh, the leucine amount. If the leucine signals, then insulin is going to release, but just enough to create a protein synthesis. If there is no protein synthesis because your insulin, because your leucine was not enough and there was no signal, and more of it is going to be converted into glucose, it is going to be converted into glucose based on the speed of your body, which your body can you know, watch and, and, and formulate. And so your insulin is going to be reduced. Uh, based on demand as more and more protein is going to be converted into glucose, not based on you seeing the food and biting into sugar and a guessing game. It's going to be custom tailored in amount to what you need to release. And so your insulin, even though for most people who are on the carnivore diet will have a higher level of insulin and they will also have a higher level of glucose in general, it is actually a healthy state. So the body sort of kind of migrates toward a healthy state. Now, this was very healthy if, if you, any uh, of your audience goes back to the early 1900s when the Inuits were discovered. And there are some literature on research and they tested their blood glucose day and night. And the typical Inuit at that time just ate their uh, ancestral food, which was seafood and blubber and that kind of thing. They didn't eat fruits and, and carbs and bread and pasta. And their uh, average fasting blood glucose was 134 milligram per deciliter. So it's way out of range from what we consider today, normal. Yeah. But they never ate carbohydrate, so they never had insulin resistance. This was a natural body maintenance process because they also were in a very cold climate, and so they needed heat, and glucose is a thermal, glucose burning glucose is thermal. And so it kept them warmer. And so it's not bad to have high glucose and high insulin. Context matters.
1: True, true. No, I, I think that's actually a really important thing to know is that context does matter. And I mean, I could ask so many more questions about this. I, I'm always super interested in insulin and glucose and just all the different mechanisms. But let's go ahead and get back to your protocol. Like, so say somebody comes to you and maybe they're not on the ketogenic diet of if if you want to call it that and and they're eating these carbs day in day out what's like step one for them and then how does salt tie into this what's the protocol look like
2: okay very good question so the first step and we have everybody coming into the group and they're not usually on any good diet Uh, in fact a lot of people are coming in from vegetarian or vegan diet and the first step for them is to eat what they eat and do this five-hour test that I told you about the blood glucose and blood in, uh, ketones test. Because what that shows right away is that what they eat is killing them because it shows huge spikes. We just had one uh, actually yesterday. Huge spike uh, from eating basically, uh, she's only 16, so she was very young. But she was eating uh, cereal and bread for breakfast and her blood sugar spiked uh to like I think a hundred and forty, hundred and fifty. I forget not what the exact number was, but went there from like in the 70s. So doubled. And then she ended up with a sugar an almost sugar crash uh, uh reactive hypoglycemia. And of course she didn't eat protein, so there was no protein synthesis. So basically and she was starving by the time the test was over. And so and she was 16. So that's a very young and, and for forgiving age. So imagine the same for a 40 year old or a 60 year old, so that's not going to be very good. And so uh, this is the first thing that we do: we ask everybody to do this test when they're still eating what they're eating, so we can see how what healthy, what kind of a response they have to the food they eat. And then um, if they had a sugar crash or a reactive hypoglycemia, even if it's not a sugar crash technically, but it's like a reactive hypoglycemia, I we ask them, I ask them to go on the carnivore diet because the carnivore diet has a stabilizing factor and i ask them to switch one right away it's like a cold turkey switch because if they move slowly like reducing the carbohydrates first of all it's very really difficult for most people because carbohydrates are very addictive and also because then they touch on the ketogenic diet and they get into ketosis and as we talk about ketosis for migraine is a good thing it's a good thing once the person is no longer on medication and the person can manage their migraines pretty well, because medications can interact with the state of ketosis. So that's a very important part. Uh, it can cause lots of diseases. For example, Topomax, which is also another as method, a very favorite do- uh, drug for uh, medical providers to prescribe for migraine. The fact that it doesn't really work too well, and it causes a lot of brain issues, I'm not even mentioning, but just that it can it, there's a warning on the label, do not use it. If you're on a ketogenic diet, wow. okay, it causes kidney stones. So, um, you have to make sure that the person is not just jumping into or going through the ketogenic diet phase. You want to keep them out of ketosis and the carnivore diet can keep a person out of ketosis, they will always make some ketones that will always be there but they're not going to be in ketosis. So that would be my first recommendation. The second one, of course the ketogenic diet is therefore an advanced migraine concept where they no longer have medication and they no longer have any migraines either. Then they can switch to the ketogenic diet, they can do fasting, whatever they wish. But the second choice is what I call the protocol proper, which was the original protocol, which is basically low carb, high fat. But in this one, they have to eat carbohydrates they have to eat minimum, for, for women, minimum 50, and for men, minimum 60 net carb grams a day total to keep them out of ketosis. So that, that's another problem. And so then based on this, I will vary how much protein and how much fat they're going to be eating and give them a range of macros to, to go by approximately. But so everybody will get a different kind basically it's either going to be carnivore or it's going to be uh, the protocol proper, which is low carb high fat when they join the group. And once they're advanced and they have a beautiful five hour test that shows absolutely no problems whatsoever. And they no longer are on any medication. They can be on like thyroid or hormones. These are usually thyroid, everything usually gets dropped because they get cured on the diet. Um, But if they're on these, drugs they're fine but just not neurological drugs not, and hard drugs these two are not fine and uh then there, in that group they can practice uh time-restricted eating intermittent fasting whatever they want to do any which way but in the main group they can't it's a learning group it's uh the group where you want to sort of grow now a lot of people i find um simply don't want to change and they're on a carnivore diet they love it and they've been on it for the past Five, six, seven years, and they have no migraines, and they're living life, and they'll never change to anything else.
1: Wow, that's pretty incredible. So, do you add any any electrolytes specifically? Like, how much? How much is that?
2: Okay, so uh, instead of electrolyte mixes, which are very plentiful, <laughs> sold everywhere, um, I recommend everybody. First of all, there's a difference between whether you eat the salt or drink the salt. So, I recommend the salt in the food, the sodium in the food to be matched with potassium one-to-one. Because in our body, the amount of potassium and sodium by weight is equal. But most of our sodium is in our blood, not in the cells, but in the blood. And so to get something into the blood, you wanna drink it. And so I have everybody drink salt water if they like it, which is just your regular table salt. I'm not a fan of Himalayan or any other fancy salt. you know purified if you can manage without any additives like kosher salt or pickling salt is usually without anything just add that to water if you tolerate it if you don't tolerate it like i don't then um i designed electrolyte capsules um and it's sold by a company called health by principle i don't i'm not connected to the company in any way but i designed their supplements very specifically to migraine and that would be Uh, one capsule, which is 300 milligrams sodium. That's about um, 750 milligrams salt. So about an eighth of a teaspoon salt per eight ounces of cup of water. And it's important that a migraineur drinks, uh, based on their weight and gender, the right amount of water each day. So that's very important.
1: Okay. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense. So I know we're kind of running close on time now. So I want to link all of your resources in the show notes, but thank you so much for coming on today and just talking through all of this. I hope we can help some audience members out there. Well, thank you for inviting me. It
2: was fun. And you asked some really good questions. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our audience for tuning in today. We're so glad you did. And I know you will find this episode super helpful and love it just as much as I did.
0: The content provided by the Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. The Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com, the Synthesis of Wellness LLC, and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.